0: Well, good morning everybody. And uh, Jeremy, thank you for declaring this a cool morning. So it is cool to be here and with you all. So we're going to get right into our passage of scripture for today, which is in the book of 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verse, verses 13 to 18. As most of you will know, we're on a journey through the book of 1st Thessalonians. And, uh, you know, I've read this book many times and taught through it and translated it and done all sorts of things. And every time I come back to it, there's always more. And I discover more every time. And that's the way the word of God is. It's so rich and so full. And you can never run out of truth as we go through the scripture. So let's let's just read our passage together. The story so far in First Thessalonians, we've talked quite a bit about the two triads that are mentioned in the first couple of verses of First Thessalonians, that is faith, love and hope and work, labor and endurance and how those kind of work their way through the letter. And in, in verse chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've talked about how Paul was using this letter to remind them of things he'd already said. And how often in this letter, as you read it through, and if you read it, you'll notice, maybe you want to underline when you see it, uh, how many times he says, You know, you know, and you know, just as you know, or you remember and it's a a letter full of reminders but here we get to a passage where he suddenly changes gear and says this is something we don't want you to be ignorant of here's something that you don't know and so that's this is a major uh, sort of transition point in the letter and says something very important we don't want you to be ignorant. We don't want you not to know is literally what he says. This is a something, this is a little phrase of Paul's. He uses it about several times in, in a number of his letters. We don't want you to be ignorant. And uh, so when, when the author says something like that, we need to sit up and take notice. Okay, what is it that Paul wants us to really to know about? What's so important? What's going on here? And the issue here is what happens after you die, what happens after you die? And the t- title for our talk this morning is What Happens After You Die? Hope of Life in a Dying World. That's what First Thessalonians 4:13 to 18 is about. And what does happen after a believer dies? There's a lot of pop theology out there and beliefs about the afterlife. you probably come across some of it. One time I was teaching a Bible study. And uh, one of the participants put up her hand and said, Look, I've got a problem. I've got a teenage boy who doesn't want to go to heaven. He tells me, I don't want to go to heaven. And so I said to him, Well, why don't you want to go to heaven? It's very distressing for a Christian mother to hear that a teenage boy doesn't want to go to heaven, really doesn't want to go. So why don't you want to go to heaven? She asked him, and he said, What's so boring? It's sitting around on a cloud playing a harp and just, it's just an, it's a never ending praise session. It's just a, it's like we start to sing and we never get to the sermon. It's all, it's all just singing. And, you know, that would be boring if that's what it was. Perhaps. Although I do think that there's going to be so much reason to praise when we meet the Lord. Uh, it won't be, won't be a kind of yawn fest. It's going to be exciting, worshipping Him forever. But that's not all that's involved in the new life. And, and so there's these kind of ideas that somehow heaven is a kind of ethereal place. It's kind of on a cloud. Uh, that's what happens after a Christian dies is you go up to heaven. It's kind of, It's a sort of disembodied existence, with, and it's kind of, it's it's less than real. It's less than tangible. It's less than solid. It's uh, something other than real, earth, real embodied existence in some in some physical way. It's just a bit less, even though it may last a bit longer. We've got all these kind of pop theologies, uh, beliefs about the afterlife, and this passage is going to tell us something really important about what happens after we die. Now, what about heaven? You know, if the Thessalonians wanted to know about what happened to departed believers, why doesn't Paul talk about heaven here? That's an interesting question, which he he doesn't answer in this passage, but it's an interesting one. And in fact, Paul talks very little about heaven altogether. One or two places, Second Corinthians 5, one or two other places. But basically, uh, Paul's vision of life after death does not revolve around heaven. It revolves around resurrection and the new creation. And so there's something more than heaven, if I can dare to say that. What does happen after you die we know that paul says elsewhere you know that he's he's when he when he dies he knows he's going to be with the lord and that's preferable and, and so on and so he's he, he has this very strong belief as we should do that for a believer who dies you're going to be in the presence of you're going to be with the lord and uh, and so on but What exactly happens? And this passage doesn't answer all those questions that might arise there, but it gives us a very strong answer to the basic question. So in verse 13, he kind of introduces this by saying, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep or have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. By the way, he's not talking, obviously, about just you falling asleep and have to people are grieving until someone wakes up in the morning this is a euphemism for death it's very common in the bible and in the ancient world even in today's world using the, the euphemism or metaphor of sleep for death and and so but he what paul is saying is that for others the rest those outside the body of faith the body of the church they have no hope And that's why they grieve differently. It's not that believers will not grieve when someone dies, when a believer dies. But the grief is different because it's a grief that is informed by hope. And we're going to discover what kind of hope there is. But Paul's going to give the Thessalonians advanced knowledge of what to expect and what what they can look forward to upon death. I always, when I speak about a topic like this, I always want to remember that in a group of this size, there's likely to be at least one or two people who are dealing with these kind of issues in a very personal way. Someone near to you may well have died recently. And I, I you know, I just, so I just want to acknowledge that this uh, is not just a theoretical matter. This is a personal matter uh, for many, for some of you or many of you, even around this time we you know and and so just be aware that the lord understands and he wants to give you some encouragement what did people the rest believe about death back in paul's day in in corinth or in that greco roman world well there's a whole range of beliefs but uh, they basically believe that uh, when you die your body, your soul was separated from your body and your soul maybe went somewhere, uh, went down in fact to Hades. And uh, that's kind of a very common belief. But the Hades was a place without any hope. There's no escape from Hades. Uh, and so in fact, there was a giant, in their mythology, there's a giant three headed dog called Cerberus who is guarding the gates of Hades uh, to keep you from getting out? Uh, once you're dead, you're dead. You don't come back. This is the idea. Uh, one of the there's a Greek writer who's called Theocritus who said, "Hopes, hopes are for the living. The dead have no hope." There there are some Greek, ancient Greek and, and Latin inscriptions on graves, which say something like this and it's not huge numbers of them but there's, there's some of them there and it's quite interesting uh they say this i was not i was i am not i care not so you know i i i there was a time when i wasn't i became i, I was born i am not i died i don't care because after the dead have no cares just like Theocritus said the dead have no hope this inscription is saying the dead have no worry because they're dead. Uh, there's a strong belief in fate in the ancient Greco-Roman world. So they in which the New Testament was set. And so they believe that you know your time of death was set and you and everything you die if you die, and the way you die, it's all down to fate. Now What about Jewish beliefs? That's quite, somewhat different. Jews also believed in Hades, a place or the dwelling place of the dead, but, uh, they, in, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, they called Sheol. Sheol is the, basically the equivalent of Hades. And, uh, and there are some Jewish graves, which we've discovered from, from these times, uh, that thought of the grave as a permanent existence. So there's some some Jewish graves. Which they use the expression eternal home on the grave. This is my eternal home would be the kind of way the inscription reads on the grave. And it tells them that they think they're going to be forever. But for many Jews in the first century world, they had a strong belief in a life beyond the grave and, and beyond Sheol. And that was the life. In, that was the belief in the resurrection. The resurrection belief doesn't start with the New Testament starts in the Old Testament, starts, for example, in Daniel chapter 12 uh, and uh, where it looks forward to the resurrection of the just. There's so... Jews generally speaking, and we know from the New Testament, you might have, if you've read your Gospels and the Book of Acts, you'll realize that there's a debate within Judaism as to whether there is going to be a future resurrection for the dead generally, and so the, the Sadducees said no, the Pharisees said yes, and that was one of the debates within Judaism. So some Jews at least believed in a coming resurrection of the dead, and Paul had been a Pharisee before his conversion, and so, and he kept that belief in the resurrection going through. Now, this passage we're looking at is, is supposed to provide the Thessalonian church with hope. It says that you may not hope just like that, you know, that you may hope not like those who don't have hope. It's, it's an incredible passage. They may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And there is a need for hope beyond the grave, really a need, in, for two reasons. One is we need hope in the light of death, right? It's kind of obvious, but death is the enemy. Right, Death in the Bible, in the New Testament, is the enemy that Christ overcomes. Death is not the end, even though it's the enemy. And we see in the book of Revelation that it says there that even death itself is cast into the lake of fire. In other words, death is destroyed at the end. It's an incredible thing. But we need hope beyond the grave. We need hope in the light of the, the fact that the world is dying and the world is coming to an end at some point and that everybody dies, we need hope. We also need hope, of course, in the light of the coming judgment that the Bible is very clear that there's a judgment coming for the whole world and that's going to happen when Jesus returns and we need hope in the light of that coming judgment. If we even look just look back in our letter of first Thessalonians we're going to see some interesting things they knew already about the second coming about the final judgment Uh, for example in verse chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven Jesus who delivers us from the coming Wrath. Okay, I, I can't say wrath; that's American. I only say wrath; that's Australian. But uh, forgive me. But uh, Jesus delivers us from the coming wrath. That wrath is coming on the world. If you li- and the judgment of God is coming, Jesus delivers us from that, and it's, it's His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That's already suggesting that the resurrection of Jesus is important part of our deliverance from the coming wrath of God. In chapter 2 verse 19, Paul says, What is our hope or joy or crowning or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Paul expects to be accountable when the Lord returns and and he hopes to have something uh to say to the lord and it's going to be the thessalonians who are going to be his hope there in other words the fruit of his life the fruit of his life uh and his ministry uh will will he thinks stand him uh as the lord returns now that's fascinating but does expect um, uh, even for the believer an accounting when the lord returns and he thinks it's going to be a joyful accounting though in chapter three Paul prays for the Thessalonians, and he says he prays that God would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his holy ones. So that's a prayer for the Thessalonians to be established and steadfast in holiness when the Lord Jesus returns with his holy ones. Some translations say with his saints meaning his holy people and its holy ones. Probably the allusion here is actually back to some Old Testament passages when it's God coming with his angels is really what's going on. And in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul talks about holiness, uh, which we looked at, of course, uh, previously in last week, and he says the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And as we told you in advance and solemnly warned you. So the Thessalonians know already that Jesus is coming back, that that, when he comes back, that is the time when God is going to pour out his wrath on the world. It's a time of judgment. It's a time of accounting. It's a time of uh, when God brings everything, uh, to a, to a head. That's what they know. But what they don't know is what happens after you die now, that's a bit curious right because uh when we are doing evangelism when we 21st century believers are wanting to share our faith with people most of the, here's the probably the number one technique do you know how do you know what happens to you after you die what if you were to leave this meeting today and get run over by a bus uh are you sure that you would be in heaven uh if you were to die today that kind of rhetoric is very common in evangelism right it's we want people to have a sense of security for the afterlife and uh, and yet here's paul who has told them so many things we've discovered in our journey through this letter so many things he's already told them and yet they apparently don't know what happens when they die so i think that's interesting and if you know of course remember that paul had to leave thessalonica in a hurry he was being persecuted and so he didn't get to tell them everything he wanted to tell them but he told them an awful lot and apparently doesn't didn't tell them about uh, what happens to departed believers so that's quite interesting the i was uh, walking down by the beach the other day and uh, there was a uh, a kiosk or a little cafe and there was, a, and, and I came up to this cafe, it had a menu there, and it had a, had a sign, a written, handwritten sign out the front of the cafe that said, I quote, we can take care of you on the other side. We, and the window was shut, there was, there was no, it wasn't open, we can take care of you on the other side. I thought, well, that's mysterious. We can take care of you on the other. That's an offer that most cafes can't, can't give. You know, that's, I mean, that's a deal right there on the other side. Well, I walked around to the other side of the building and they had another window open where people could, were in line for their burgers. So it was on the other side of the building that they met. But what happens on the other side? And so now we get to verse 14. Paul gives us the answer. Here's the hope. Since, he says, we believe Jesus died and rose, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Jesus died and rose again. This is an early confession of what, of an early formula, if you like, uh, about a, a confession of faith about Jesus. Jesus died. And rose. That's what happened. It's an acknowledgement that he died, which is of course an acknowledgement of his humanity uh, and his shared that he shared our life. And he rose. His death was not the end. And then in our text, through Jesus, God is going to raise the dead. Our resurrection is dependent entirely on his resurrection. Our resurrection is if you like, a part of, it's only brought into being because of Jesus' own resurrection. And he's going to bring these, those who've fallen asleep. He's going to, what does it mean to bring them? I think probably here means bring them up from the grave. He's going to bring them up from the grave, just like Jesus rose from the grave. He's going to bring the dead up from the grave. You know, in Matthew chapter sixteen and verse eighteen, there's a famous passage, sixteen, eighteen of Matthew, he says, "I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, and Peter, of course, is a name that means rocks. You are rocky, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Some translations say gates of hell. The Greek word here is Hades hades. and uh, And so when I was a young Christian, I, you know, and I was learning about how the devil attacks people and people were telling me, don't worry about the devil, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So, I had this kind of idea that these were very threatening gates somehow, that some, and you, it's almost like the gates are coming down the street to your house. And they come and attack you, don't worry, they're not gonna prevail. And it, it was weird how you think that that's what this passage means. But the gates of Hades are what keep up, are what keeps people in. The gates of Hades are to keep the dead dead, right? In the metaphor the, or the imagery here, that's what the gates of Hades are. When Jesus said the gates of Hades will not overcome the church that he builds, it means the church is going to rise from the dead. This is an early affirmation of resurrection. Even death is not going to overcome the church because we're going to rise from the dead. Amen? Amen. Jesus will bring his church up from the grave because he rose from the dead first. And we we'll share his resurrection. Well, in our next few verses, he says, and uh, we'll go down to verse 17. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we here alive who remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. First of all, notice something, the authority and the strength of this promise. First of all, he declares it by the word of the Lord. This is as strong as you can get, this is saying this is absolute, this is the word of the Lord. This is not paul 's good idea here. This is not something he thinks might possibly happen. This is the word of the Lord. this is what 's going to happen, and you 'll notice also when he says that the dead will not precede uh, those who remain alive when the Lord returns back, uh, that the way he expresses that in the Greek is with a double negative, and then you can do that in Greek, and it just strengthens it so. Uh, a sort of emphatic negation so they will never no not at all precede those who uh who, rem- who are alive so very strong and very authoritative and he says to them that the dead in christ are at no disadvantage when jesus returns because the dead in christ will even rise first wow so, they were concerned about what happened when you die, and when, and they knew that Jesus is coming back, and there's gonna become a judgment, but what, those who are already dead, uh, what's gonna, ha- what's gonna to happen to them? And Paul is saying, they're going to rise. And in fact, they're going to rise first. The answer to death, to the problem of death, the enemy which is death, is what? Resurrection. That's kind of obvious, but that's the answer. What is it that overcomes death in the world, it's resurrection in Christ. From Jesus' resurrection, first of all, and our resurrection. Death is the enemy, resurrection is the answer. And this resurrection happens when Jesus returns. When he says here, the Lord himself, and he's talking about Jesus. So Paul uses the word Lord, Greek kurios, he uses the word Lord many times for Jesus. And in this passage, he calls Jesus, uh, he refers to Jesus twice with his personal name, uh, Jesus. Uh, he refers to him once as Christ, the Messiah, and five times as the Lord. And he is, the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and he's going to come down with a command, a cry of command the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of god wow he comes down to bring us up this is the drama of the parousia what we call the christian users christians use the word parousia it's a greek word it's in the new testament and uh when it says in verse 15 the coming of the lord the greek word here is coming is parousia and it's a word that can just mean arrival or coming but often is used for a kind of grand arrival of someone important that's a parousia and certainly in the bible it's used for the coming of jesus in that way and here the drama of the parousia think about how it's announced there's a shout a commanding word uh, of jesus perhaps it's a kind of battle scene in some ways right because uh you've got this trumpet blowing and you've got the archangel shouting and you've got jesus himself with a cry of command and jesus returns in first corinthians fifteen fifty-one and 52 paul says this i'm telling you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. See, this is a battle scene actually. The battle is called and victory is assured. If you go back into the Old Testament, you look for example in Joshua, Joshua chapter 6, I'm just reading through Joshua in my personal uh, readings at this point uh, in the mornings and in chapter 6 when they march around jericho uh, the way that they initiate the fall of the walls uh, you know it's, it's really god who brings the walls down so they can uh, conquer the city but as israel goes around them uh, on the seventh day they sh- they they shout and they blow trumpets so the, the priests blow trumpets and the people all shout it's a kind of battle scene in the same in Judges chapter 7 in the battle between Gideon and the Israelites and the invading Midianites and uh, as the, the the small group of, of Israelites the 300 of them they blow trumpets they shout and then they wave their torches and that's the signal for the battle to begin a victorious battle over the invaders uh, in chapter 47, of, or in Psalm 47, I should say, it talks about God leading up Israel into the promised land through the wilderness in, a, in a terms of it being a spiritual battle. It says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. So this kind of a shout and a trumpet is a precursor to a battle. But when Jesus comes back, the battle is over almost before it's begun, right? Because he comes back, and he wins if, if this this same kind of scene is shown in the book of revelation where jesus is coming with all his armies and and uh, all his angels and all the and all the saints and everything are with jesus as he comes to earth uh and they're to he's gonna fight the, the the you know the forces of evil and they they never get to fight he he just destroys them with the sword of his mouth meaning his word he speaks and that was that's done this is a battle where jesus wins just by speaking, as he shouts that command, the archangel shouts, you know, the trumpet sounds, it's awesome. And what about the rapture then? What about this being caught up? We are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We'll say so we'll always be with the Lord. What's that all about? If you're a believer and you'd pass away or you are alive when jesus returns guess what you get to be on the welcoming committee we are the welcoming committee the dead in christ arise and they literally caught up into the air and we're rolling out the red carpet for jesus that's what it is we're caught up it says here from meeting with the lord in the air uh, the same kind of expression for a meeting, the same, using the same Greek words is used in Matthew 25, six, talking about the parable of the bridegroom coming back. And, uh, there's a cry at midnight, here's the bridegroom Come out from meeting with him, uh, or come out to meet him. And so exactly the same expression in the Greek, uh, there's that, you know, big wedding coming and this is a parable Jesus said, he told one of those parables to be ready for his return, uh in chapter of 24 of Matthew Jesus talks about his return it says this uh, then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming up coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other same kind of scene is being played out or being described in matthew 24 by jesus but we also have an interesting one in matthew 13 it says that uh, at the end of the age just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire so it will be at the end of the age the son of man will sound out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them in the fiery furnace. So some people, you know, some people, cause talk, use this passage to make a case of the raptures for non-believers, right? Because they're, they're the causes of evil that are being taken out of God's kingdom. When Jesus comes back, everybody's going to meet him, the living and the dead will sit stand before him as we see in Matthew 25 the sheep and the goats there's going to be a sorting out there's going to be a harvest and this harvest will be sorted out but Jesus coming back and when it says we, we're caught up in the, to meet him there in the air or in the clouds this is straight out of the Old Testament imagery right uh God so often is described as coming with the clouds, even in Daniel 7:13 and 14, a son of man figure there, the, the one who is given the eternal kingdom over the, all the nations of the world. And, and uh, it says he came with the clouds of heaven. Jesus himself said, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Revelation 1-7, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, every, even those who pierced him. So Jesus is coming with the clouds and in the air. We get to be the welcome committee. We caught up because in the, in the ancient world, if a great personage, an emperor or king or someone was coming or a, in the bridegroom story, when someone's coming to town, you don't wait for them to start knocking on the gates. You go out to meet them. And you welcome them to your town. You bring them back. You don't, it's rude to let them have to come all the way in. You go out to meet them and you're welcome with great ceremony. And here we have this ceremony. It's trumpets, it's calls, archangels. We're caught up by the Lord to meet him on his way to earth. This is not, I don't think, although probably some people, and there's different opinions about this text, but I, I think this is not the church disappearing from the earth, leaving everybody else wondering what happened. This is being. Everybody will see Jesus returning. We get to be caught up and be the welcome committee as He comes back to Earth. At least in this text, anyway. And and so that's. uh, And then He'll bring us back to Earth. And then there'll be the judgment and the accounting and the and the welcome. And and in Second Thessalonians talks about how, you know, He's going to those believers will be just rejoicing to see Him come it's going to be a great day because we'll be, we'll death will be overcome and we'll meet Jesus there face to face as he comes. Verse 18, Paul says, finishes this by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. <laughs> oh boy, this is so powerful. The present power of the coming resurrection. The resurrection. The future resurrection, of course, is based on Jesus' re- resurrection already, but it's, it's meant to make a difference in our lives now. It's meant to encourage you, meant to give you hope. It, because what it says is that the first, cre- the creation we're now living in is not meaningless. The, the bodies we now have, they're going to be changed, they're going to be renewed, they're going to be different, but they're still, the, the, the life to come is an embodied life, a real life. Life with real bodies in a real place. It's not just a wafty, ethereal spiritual existence. This is real resurrection, and that's it. And so, what we do on this earth, perhaps some of that will make its way into the new creation, into the renewed, into when everything is changed. Uh, I wonder, you know, but but I think it will. In First Corinthians 15:58, 15:58, Paul talks about the resurrection in the whole of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And he's going to insist over and over again, is a resurrection coming, the resurrection resurrection coming. And it's because Jesus has already risen dead. He says much the same thing at greater length than we have in Thessalonians. And then he gets to the final conclusion after having said all this for 57 verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I won't take the time to read it. But then his conclusion is, therefore, brothers, brethren, and sistren, of course, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's amazing. Your work now is meaningful in the light of the coming resurrection. So... We have a five-year-old grandson, and his, his, uh, our daughter-in-law, his, his mother was off. Uh, he, he, she had made some cake, and when you make, uh, it was sort of Australian, British-style Christmas cake, that, uh, it, you know, it's, it's kind of a fruit cake, and it lasts a long time, and you can keep it and have another year. You know, you make it one year and eat it the next. It's, it's wonderful stuff, and uh, but so in, in uh, about the middle of the year. Um, my grandson was asking his mother, oh, can can we have some Christmas cake? It wasn't, you know, Christmas in July. It was just kind of the Christmas cakes around and uh, some of the leftover from Christmas. And uh, so she said to them, well, you can have a crumb because we need to offer a crumb. We'll have to split the cake up among the whole village, you know, the sort of apartment village where they live. And uh, so we got excited about this idea of sharing the Christmas cake with everybody. He said, we could we could share a crumb with everybody. I I can share a crumb, I can share a crumb of cake with Jesus. He he says, you just have to bury me in the ground with the Christmas cake. Just have to bury me in the ground with the Christmas cake. So, you know, he's got, he's kind of got the right idea. Not that Christmas cake will survive through death and resurrection, but the idea that that somehow, that this life has meaning for the next. That resurrection then is not the absolute annihilation of every kind, everything that ever existed and we end up in just a spiritual, ethereal, immaterial existence. But the new life of the resurrection is a real embodied resurrection, a real embodied life in a new creation very tangible very wonderful and that what we do in this life counts to in the next especially if it's if it's good and paul talks about this in first corinthians he says you know some of your works will be burned up but maybe some of them won't i'm hoping there'll be Bach in in you know, bark's music in, in in the resurrection some of these things will survive i hope but it's such a hope for us to know To know that death is not the end that that the hope that we have in the light of the of of death the hope that we have in the light of the coming judgment is that Jesus died and rose and this is what guarantees the resurrection of those who are in Christ Paul says the dead in Christ will rise Friends, perhaps you're not a believer who hearing this, I want you to know you can have hope for life beyond the grave. It's in Jesus alone. It's in Jesus alone. Death, the enemy has been overcome by Jesus in his his own death and resurrection. Come, Lord Jesus.